Hello friends, Wayne Stiles here, and I'm excited to host a Bible conference next year on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Erie Conference Center in Colorado Springs. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each session and to give a concert one evening. More information and registration is going to be coming soon, but mark your calendar for June 12 through 15, 2025. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. It's a virtual tour of biblical sites and, more importantly, what difference they make in our lives. To see more, just head over to walkingthebiblelands.com. Hi, and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your life. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about bad company. I don't mean house guests. I mean those we choose to hang around, and more importantly, why we do it. Jesus surprised many people in his day, and his example gives us the freedom to engage the world for him. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's dive into this week's podcast. Well, I read a a true account about a guy that was fishing for, I think it was salmon, down this river. And he, you know, he had his waders on and he was in and he was, you know, doing some fly fishing. And he got in a little deep and the current got the, the best of him and pulled him under. And so here he is, you know, rod waders, everything, going down the river, and a friend of his actually saw from a distance that he'd gone under. They were a ways apart. And so the friend knew the river really well and knew that eventually it was going to come around and it was going to bend right at this spot under a bridge. So his friend decides to go over to the bridge and see if he can try to help him. He gets over to the bridge, and when his when the buddy comes around the bend and he sees him, he said there was nothing sticking up but his head and his his uh, his feet from the rubber waders. And his friend said, "So I just decided I'd start casting." <laughs> so he he cast and he hooked his rubber waders. I mean, aren't you glad he didn't like get him in the cheek or something? But got his rubber waders. But the, the challenge was most salmon don't weigh 250 pounds. And so he's got this, you know, this small rod and this thin, uh, you know, thin string line to, to pull this guy in. And he used every trick in the book and finally was able to land his friend. And, and you know, everything was, everything was just fine. And I read about that. And I thought, well, that's kind of a fun story. And then I thought about Jesus. You know, when he walked the shores of the Sea of Galilee and called Peter and Andrew and James and John to be fishers of men, (laughs) he probably didn't have that in mind. And yet, at the same time, I think it's a great example, not just from the perspective of us fishing, but also from the perspective of us being fished. When we think about the Great Commission, we often think about it from the perspective of Jesus giving it to us, and we go out and perform it. But think for a second what it was like when you were the one drowning in the river. Not just you're the one that casts the line and saves the day, or gives the good news, but do you remember what it was like 
that there was nothing but your face and your feet sticking out of the water. And if it wasn't but for the grace of God, somebody casting their line at you, you would have gone under. Um, I've been a Christian most of my life. I trusted Christ when I was, uh, I think it was about seven when I, when I did. And uh, many of you, if not most of you, probably could say a very similar thing, that at a, at a young age, you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And thankfully, we have communion occasionally, and it brings us back to what communion is supposed to do, and that is to remind us of the gospel and remind us of our essential participation in the gospel by faith. But it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that we were the ones drowning. We were the ones drowning. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. And I'd like for you to just carry with you into this chapter the perspective of You're not just the one casting the line, you're the one whom someone cast at. So far in the book of Mark, Mark has introduced us very quickly to the ministry of Jesus. We hit the ground running in the Gospel of Mark. None of this business about Christmas and Jesus growing up, I mean, we just hit the ground and all of a sudden the ministry starts. And it begins with John the Baptist preaching the good news, repent, because this kingdom is coming. Jesus comes on the scene, he's baptized, and he takes up that same conversation with the people, preaching the gospel of God. And then he um, begins to validate that message. In other words, he begins to say, look, the, the kingdom that I am offering Israel is a kingdom I can deliver, and I'm proving it by doing these miracles. The miracles proved that Jesus could deliver on what he said he could. The problem is things began to sort of get upside down, that everyone was real excited or more excited about the fact that Jesus could heal people than the fact that Jesus came and was talking about the spiritual life as well. And so Jesus did a number of things to try to right that upside-down imbalance. Uh, Everything from leaving and leaving people sick and walking uh, to another town so he could preach to reemphasizing before he healed somebody, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, before he healed him, he said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' emphasis is on forgiveness of sins and the repentance that's necessary to enter the kingdom. Otherwise, the kingdom he's offering, you'll never enter. Mark chapter 2, we left off at verse 12. So let's pick it up right again at verse 13. Mark 2, 13. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Taxes. You think they're unpopular now. In the first century Israel or Judea, here's how taxes worked. Rome was the the governing power. They were the Gentile nation that had conquered so much of that area, including Judea, or what was Old Testament Israel and Judah. And the way it worked in the Old Testament, it was a pretty simple system. It was sort of a bully system. 
I think we talked about this some with Hezekiah and the Assyrians. But the way it worked is one nation conquered another nation and demanded tribute. And if you didn't pay tribute, they'd come and kill you. That's a pretty simple system. Well, when Rome conquered, they decided to be a little bit more organized about it. And they said, look, we want tribute in the form of taxes. And the way they set it up is they said, uh, anybody, any of the locals who want to help us with this can get in on the deal. And so the way tax collecting worked in Israel was they would basically contract it out and local Jews would, would bid the job. So let's say that the Romans wanted to collect $100 a tax from Taylor. So well, let's bid on who wants to uh, collect that tax from Taylor. Well, uh, somebody over here might say, well, I'll, I'll charge or I'll pay Rome not just Taylor's 100 but I'll pay 120 Someone over here says, well, I'll pay 150 Rome goes, well, I'd rather have 150 You get the job. And so a tax collector was one who was basically a local who was the highest bidder, and then on top of that 150, Rome also allowed you to charge anything above that you wanted that you could keep personally, legally, and you had to pay. So that's the way it worked. And so it's no wonder that these locals, these Jews, were looked at as traitors. They were traitors. I mean, imagine a friend of yours that is now working for, you know, the federal government that comes in and says the government has authorized me to charge you such and such money above what you really owe, and I get to pocket it. And you have to pay, or you'll get carted off. That's the way tax collecting worked. And Levi, or we know him also as Matthew, was a Jew who was considered a traitor. His... Uh, a, a tax collector's testimony was not valid in court. Who's going to trust a tax collector? His money was not accepted in the synagogue because it was considered dirty money. It would be sort of like Jesus today coming up to a crooked lawyer and saying, follow me. You know, we would all kind of go, sort of cast doubt on that. Except in the first century, if Matthew left his job, Rome was going to, it wasn't going to go, oh, that's okay, Matthew, we'll just kind of keep this position open for you till you change your mind. Rome was like, we're going to fill that in a New York minute. And so it wasn't like Peter and Andrew and James and John as fishermen. They could go back to fishing anytime they wanted. When Matthew walked away from being a tax collector, he walked away from being a tax collector. That job was filled by the next contractor in line, and Matthew realized there was no going back. So for him to get up and actually walk away, this was a true conversion. A true conversion. So Jesus cast his line at this bottom feeder, at Matthew, to someone that most people despised. And it's what Jesus did next, though, that angered the religious leaders of his day. Look at verse 15. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, meaning in Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Not long ago, I was 
asked by a family member to uh, officiate for somebody's wedding. And I said, well, sure, I'd be honored to do that. And one of the things that they asked me to do is they said, be sure and talk about Jesus. I said, well, you know, it's kind of usually what I do when I talk at weddings. It's a great opportunity to share Christ. And they said, we want our friends to know that, you know, that Jesus is part of our lives. And in a way, I kind of thought that was odd until I went to the wedding and met some of the friends. (laughs) Um, This wedding was more like a party with a wedding attached. Food, booze, drugs. There were literally people stoned who could barely stand up. (laughs) You know, I've never been to a wedding like this before. And it wasn't, I confess, until after we got back that I even put two and two together and thought about this incident with Jesus and all these sinners. What a fantastic opportunity I had and took. I mean, I did share about the Lord, but I didn't even put two and two together here that uh, this is exactly what Jesus was doing in Matthew's house. Matthew is an outcast who has invited these other outcasts to come to his home and meet Christ. And Jesus goes and willingly eats with these tax collectors and sinners. Notice how they're called sinners. What a great perspective. It's given as a perspective here. I don't know if you have uh, in your margin... Um, For verse 15, he was reclining with tax collectors and sinners. In your margin, it says, i.e., irreligious Jews. In other words, people who didn't follow the customs of the Pharisees. These are those who were sinners by the Pharisees' standards, not necessarily by God's. Though maybe, maybe they were, but this is particularly referring to the sinners from the perspective of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come up and ask Jesus' disciples, notice, didn't ask Jesus, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? But notice Jesus' answer in verse 17. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. You know, sometimes Jesus' words become so uh, cliché that we don't think about them in their context. The Pharisees are upset. The word, uh, the Pharisees get their name from the Hebrew word parash. It means to separate. The Pharisees saw themselves as separate from the ungodly and from the sinner. And I think initially when they came up with this idea of being Pharisees, it was a good thing back between the Testaments during those volatile years when it was necessary to be holy and ritually pure. The Pharisees were very conservative. But it sort of um, went downhill and became a um, almost like a sect might be a better way to look at it, of Judaism that was so absolutely strict that not only do you have the Bible, but you have a few rules on top of that that made you not a sinner. And the Pharisees' question really can be summed up with, why aren't you like us? 
Why aren't you like us? Why are you eating and drinking with sinners? Because to eat and drink with sinners assumes fellowship. To eat and drink with somebody assumes fellowship. Typically, you're not going to waste your time at a meal with somebody that you don't like. Imagine if somebody that you really didn't like called you on the phone and said, Hey, let's go out to lunch. You'd probably think, You know what? I've suddenly got plans at that moment. I don't want to go and eat with you. You don't typically eat with somebody unless you're in it, in together, in a relationship. And that's what the Pharisees were assuming about Jesus, except Jesus didn't see these people as those that he was fellowshipping with simply on a social level. Jesus saw it as ministry. Jesus didn't go there to uh, just to be chummy. He went there for ministry. Notice it says they were following him. And at the end of verse 15, they were following him. Jesus was influencing them. They weren't influencing him. And that's the crucial difference that the Pharisees missed. It's not those who think they are healthy, if you could paraphrase Jesus' words in verse 17. It's not those who think they are healthy who need a physician, but those who realize that they're sick. I didn't come to call the self-righteous, you might paraphrase it. I came to call those who are sinners or those who realize that they need my help. I remember Howard Hendricks telling a group of us students one time that he didn't teach summer school for a very specific reason. It was his desire to get out into the workplace, to, to, to leave his Christian bubble for a little while and get out into the workplace. He said, I, I needed to hear some hells and dams to remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because otherwise it's so easy to just be a parash, to just separate to be a Pharisee in the sense of just separate from one another. Kathy and I homeschooled our girls, and I'll tell you, this was, this was a huge challenge, and it is a big challenge for, for families who homeschool. Because typically, we homeschool because we want to have a protected environment by which we can teach our children from a godly worldview what the world is really like, as opposed to just kind of tossing them and trusting that the education system of today is going to do a good job and that we at home in the evenings can undo what's done at the day. Sometimes that works. For us, we decided it wouldn't work. But the flip side of our challenge then become, how do we get out of our little Christian bubble? And Jesus realized the way to do it is to get involved with those who are willing to listen, to reach out to those who are awkward to those who are not accepted by society if they are open to listening to you about Jesus Christ. The text is going to show us today two sets of contrasts. So um, I want you to think about, just in your mind, prepare for two, two different sets of contrasts with one question that we'll ask about each of these two sets. So the first part of the first contrast is this. It's an observation that some retreat from sinners in order to stay protected. Some people retreat from sinners in order to stay protected. But the problem is when you wall and you build a wall, you're also walling in your own, your own carnality, your own uh, depravity. 
You know what Paul says, we read uh, from 1 Corinthians 15 during our church service, and I thought about a little earlier in that chapter where Paul said, bad company corrupts good character. Remember that that verse? That that. That verse comes in the context. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, the rapture. And Paul is defending the resurrection, and the uh, this bad company corrupts good character. Paul is actually quoting someone else, but applying it here, saying that you want to be around those who encourage you to be to think about the rapture, about the resurrection. Otherwise, if you don't have that kind of hope, it can corrupt you. Well, so how, do we, how does that square here? It comes with a mindset that bad company corrupts good character, yes, if you're in it for the company. But if you are in bad company in order for the purpose of influencing them for Jesus Christ, then that's something totally different. Who is influencing whom? That's what you always want to ask when you're rubbing shoulders with the world. I remember reading about John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts. He said that his dream of Boston back in 1630, he said, we shall be a city set on a hill. Remember remember that? The idea there is that when the pilgrims or the Puritans came over, the first they tried to go to Holland and Holland wouldn't have them. And so they, they came over here to the United States and their goal was to set up this city on a hill, this this utopia or this sort of ideal place that once England saw how wonderful it was, if you just do what the Bible says, then they'll invite him to come back over. The pilgrim's goal, the Puritan's goal, was to come over here, do it right, give an example for England, and England would ask him to come right back. The problem is they got all the way up here, they got the city set on a hill, but it was a city full of sinners, just like all the cities on the hill in England. What they failed to account for was their depravity. And the city on the hill turned out to be just like all other cities. It wasn't just a matter of walling off all the ungodliness out there without dealing with all the ungodliness right here. That's where it begins. So it takes a shift in mindset from a perspective of of not walling off the world, but being careful, as James says, true religion in the sight of our God and Father is to keep oneself unspoiled by the world, is to be able to be in the world and yet not of it. It's like when William Carey, the father of modern missions, was at this missions conference one time, or a minister's association back in 1787. He asked because the ministers at the time weren't really into the Great Commission and, and into missions. He said, you know, is the Great Commission still binding on us? Is that something we're still supposed to be doing? And the answer, which has become infamous, was he was told, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So Kerry just went off and did it himself as the father of modern missions. Another example from the theologian Seinfeld. (laughs) There was a conversation between Elaine and her boyfriend, and Elaine asks her boyfriend, do you believe in God? And the boyfriend says, well, yes, I do. 
And Elaine says, well, is it a problem that I'm not very religious? And the boyfriend says, well, it's not a problem for me. I'm not the one going to hell. Dean Jonathan Swift said, We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you. We can't have heaven crammed. (laughs) You see, some people retreat from sinners in order to stay protected. Well, here's the other side of that contrast. Jesus reached out to sinners to show them God's grace. That's the contrast. That's the contrast. Some people retreat from sinners in order to stay protected. Jesus reached out to sinners in order to show them God's grace. So the question then, so we have two sets of contrasts and one question. The question then, who do you want to be like? Who do you want to be like? God accepts sinners just as they are, but He doesn't leave them that way. The Pharisees said, clean up your life and then you can come to God. God says, come to me and then you'll clean up your life. Hey everyone, Wayne here. If you've ever thought about taking a journey to Israel to see where the Bible actually occurred, then I invite you to come with me. Registrations just opened up for the fall of 2020 to tour Israel with an optional pre-tour to Egypt. See the video and the complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. I hope you'll join me, and I promise that you'll never read the Bible the same after you go to the lands of the Bible. Well, and now, back to the message. The Pharisees said, clean up your life and then you can come to God. God says, come to me, and then you'll clean up your life. It's a totally different mindset. It begins with grace and then grace then becomes the means by which you grow and you, you allow everything that's not right in your life to fall away. It doesn't begin with law or with rules that say, look, here's what you have to do in order to come to God, and then here's what you have to do in order to stay in favor. It begins by simply by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and the favor that you couldn't earn is given you when you simply believe in Jesus. Who do you want to be like? The Pharisees wanted to keep people at an arm's length. Jesus wanted to go and take them into his arms. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like Taylor. (laughs) Now we don't sing that, but we think it, don't we? God really sort of got a good thing when he got me. Well, that's not, how the, that's not how the song goes, that saved a wretch like me. Now, you may not think of yourself as a wretch any longer, but you are. And I am too. Except for the grace of God, wretches all we are. Which do you want to be like? The Pharisees retreated in order to stay protected. Jesus reached out in order to show them God's grace. I'll be honest, more often than not, I'm like the Pharisees. I am much more about self-preservation than I am about the Great Commission. My knee-jerk reaction, just to be honest, is I'm offended. Uh, I want to retreat to my little Christian island. I want to go into my home, lock the doors, and turn on Andy of Mayberry. But that's not what Jesus did, is it? 
Some people naturally have the gift, I guess. Maybe it's the gift of evangelism, or maybe it's just the awareness of when you're out in the world to impact the world. Uh, one of them, one of these people is my stepfather. He uh, is amazing. Every time we'll go out to eat, he, he walks into the, to a restaurant with the radar up of who he can share Christ with. We'll sit down and he'll just strike up a conversation. And I, I just, I sit and watch him. I thought, I wonder how he's going to turn this conversation. Because he just, he'll ask, you know, how are you doing, everything. And you can tell. The only reason that he is initiating conversation with this server is to eventually bring Jesus into the conversation. And he does it every single time. And he has led more people to Christ, honestly, than any, anybody I personally know. Because he has that mindset of simply reaching out like Jesus did. My wife Kathy, she's, I think we were either just married or we were dating. I think, I think we had just married. We went down to a steakhouse in Dallas that, uh, it's not there anymore, but it used to be that steakhouse in downtown in the West End where you'd go in and you'd pick out your steak raw and then, you know, you could go and cook it and you could actually tell them how you wanted them to cook it. And so we were over there, and you know we had our steaks on the on the grill, and the man that was working there was flipping the steaks for us, and we were telling him how we wanted wanted it cooked. And the grill was, I mean, it was hot, obviously, because it was cooking raw meat, and so you had to kind of you know keep back from it. And while we were standing there, uh, Kathy, you know, l- looks over and she tell, she says to the guy who's cooking our food, "Boy, that sure is hot." He said, yes, ma'am. She said, it's kind of like hell. He said, yes, ma'am. She said, sure wouldn't want to go there. How about you? Now, I, have a, I guess I could count how many words that was, but that wasn't many words. And we were already talking about eternal destinies over raw meat. That's, that's just how Kathy thinks. She thinks in terms of how can I turn this conversation into an opportunity to share Christ. Me, I'm thinking, ah, it's getting a little well done. Maybe you should flip it. <laughs> Who do you want to be like? Jesus reached out to sinners to show them God's grace. Well, the problem now turns from feasting at Matthew's house, to fasting. And uh, it's really the same issue. Mark chapter 2, now let's continue in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so now they've gone from asking Jesus' disciples about Jesus to asking Jesus about his disciples. They don't ever go to the the source. They're always asking somebody about somebody else. So why don't you fast? You know, biblically, there was only one fast required, and that was the Day of Atonement, and it was only once a year. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. All other fasts that were done were voluntary It was something that you did because between you and God, you felt like it was appropriate. And so for these Pharisees to come up, or or John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting, they said, 
why don't your, your disciples do the same thing? And so Jesus asks them or, or answers them in verse 19. Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, Jesus is the bridegroom. And you fast for a reason. You don't just fast because it's Thursday or you fast because everybody else is fasting. There's a reason you do it. And Jesus also says there's a reason you don't do it. When the bridegroom is with them, he uses a wedding as an example. The time to fast is not at a wedding. The time to feast is at a wedding. The bridegroom is with them. They're going to celebrate. They're not going to mourn. But the time will come when I'm taken away, and they will mourn, and thus they will fast. So fasting has a purpose. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't just fast for fasting's sake. There's a purpose in it. You know, so often when we baptize people, um, we're supposed to baptize them into Christ, but so often we baptize them into Christianity. And by that I mean we'll bring them in and then all of a sudden we'll say, great, so glad you're saved. Now, here's what you need to be doing. You need to go to a Bible study. You need to get involved in a men's group. You need to go to the, to the golfing thing. No, no, we'll leave that out. Um, here's all the things that you need to do in order to be in, in order to be acceptable to the, your Christian culture. When the standard is not Christianity, the standard is Christ. Or I should say the standard is not other, other Christians. The standard is Christ. And so to be shoved into the mold that you got to fast because the Pharisees fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, and John's disciples fast, and how come you're not doing it too? Because I don't have to, is Jesus' answer. There's only one fast required, and today's not the Day of Atonement. So Jesus goes on to give a couple of illustrations here, and they both really are making the same point. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. You know, sometimes don't you just kind of look at the Bible and go, Huh? The Apostle Peter said of Paul's writings, he said that Paul's writings were Scripture, which, which the untaught and the unlearned distort. And, and sometimes Paul writes things that are difficult to understand. Personally, I think Paul is a breeze to understand compared to Jesus. Sometimes I read things that Jesus says and I think, Lord, I am so glad you're coming back because I'm going to need you to tell me what this means. Sometimes his answers are just an enigma. And I won't pretend to say that I got this one all buttoned up, but it seems to say in this particular context what Jesus means here. He's saying, giving two illustrations to make the same point. 
The first illustration about sewing a patch of unshrunk cloth and all that, the garment is going to tear if you watch it, if you wash it and the patch shrinks. So you put a new patch, an unwashed patch on something and it shrinks, it's going to tear and it's going to make it even worse. The same thing happens with the, the new wine in the old wineskins. The old wineskins have already stretched to their limit. You put new wine in it, it's going to burst the skins after they you know, begin to expand. And Christ's point basically here is that he did not come to introduce something new, but a, to put it into the container of something old. You could think of it this way, and I've, I really thought about a nice, simple way to say this, and I think this is accurate. Christ is comparing the old way and the new way that he's introducing. Or the old covenant, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Covenant mean the same thing. New Testament, New Covenant mean the same thing. So he's contrasting the the Old Testament, the New Testament. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant that Jeremiah promised. The Old Covenant's purpose was to reveal sin. That's pretty much it. I mean, in a very general sense. It revealed sin. It showed God's holiness, His standard, and it showed you don't measure up. But the good news is, there's grace in that context as well. The Old Covenant revealed sin. The New Covenant forgives sin. Jeremiah 31 said one of the great things about that is, not only do you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, but you also have forgiveness of sins that God would provide. And so Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come here to combine. I didn't come here to to fit my system into your system. I've come here to change the system because uh, we're moving into the new covenant. Okay, so we said two contrasts with one question. The first one we've, we've already mentioned, that Jesus reached out to sinners to show them God's grace, even though some people retreat from sinners in order to stay protected. Here's the second one. Some people expect others to conform to their standards of holiness. Some people expect others to conform to their standards of holiness. In other words, the question that we often ask is what the Pharisees asked, why aren't you like me? Why don't you do it like me? I experienced this just this week. Kathy and I went to a concert, and when you go to a public concert, you're going to get different denominations. And I was noticing today during the the worship time, I looked around, and there was nobody standing, nobody raising their arms. We all kind of doing the same thing around here. And I expect that if we went to other churches, they'd all kind of be doing the same thing too. But when you have a concert, when an artist comes in, anybody gets to come. And so as a result, you are there and you are mixed with a body of the Christ, a, a part of the body of Christ that's broader than just your little narrow, why don't you do it like me? And so I was sitting, you know, probably, um, you know, about the third, fourth row back. And somebody right in front of me decides about, oh, I don't know, every other verse to stand up and raise their hands. Well, that's fine, except I can't see. (laughs) And I really found myself irritated by their selfishness. And then I thought about this silly passage that we're looking at this morning. And I was very convicted by the fact that 
You know, whether or not what they're doing is selfish, that's between them and the Lord. The fact is they're probably worshiping while I'm three rows back fuming because I can't see. The self-righteousness that was on the third row back probably was not as pleasing in the sight of God as the person right up front who was praising Him. It's pretty convicting. Now, I know that never happens to you, but I share that just by way of illustration. Well, that's the first half of the contrast. Here's the second half. Some people expect others to conform of their standard of holiness, but Jesus gave God room to conform people into His image. Jesus gave God room to conform people into His image. And so the question that I'll ask again, and it's the exact same question, who do you want to be like? I was coming back from a conference uh, two, three years ago, and I was sitting on an airplane, and it's one of those... uh, one of those instances where you know the plane is pretty much full, and so everybody's sitting by somebody, except I noticed that in front of me, the, the three chairs right in front of me were empty. I thought, wow, you know, somebody's like either missed the flight or whatever, but hey, I, I got three chairs right in front of me empty. I can take a deep breath. Well, just before they closed the door, I could hear them before I saw them. It was a mother and two small children. One son she was pushing, the other son she was dragging. And the one that she was dragging was literally screaming. Now, I always thought that Kathy and I had daughters, and so I know what it, what it sounds like to hear daughters screaming. I really had no idea that sons could be worse. <laughs> but this two-year-old boy... I can only liken to the, to the Bugs Bunny Tasmanian devil. You know that, that little cyclone of fury? Just this little kid. Now the other son was fine. Perfectly fine. They sat down right in front of me in those three seats. The mother in between, separating the two boys. And the Tasmanian devil was in the seat right in front of me. And then the other docile son was on the aisle. And this, uh, this son, it was like a two-hour flight, I don't know, he probably was making noise the whole time. Fidgeting, um, you know, getting up, unbuckling his seat. If they had, if they had uh, what are those things that they have in cars, child restraints that, that a child can't undo? If they had those for airplanes, I bet there's a market for them. <laughs> Because this child should have been restrained. Childproof lock. Um, I don't know the other son's name, but I'll never forget the Tasmanian's name. His name was Theo. And I know that's his name because I heard it 863 times. Theo, sit down. Theo, quit. Stop it, Theo. Theo, sit here. I mean, Theo, 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 over and over. And finally, I wanted to just stand up and say, you know, lady, can I help you? I didn't, but I wanted to say, lady, can I, can I help you? Um, and I began to really reg- uh, resent the fact that I paid just as much for my noisy ticket as the, as the blessed person in the back of the airplane by the bathroom who had the quiet seat. Theo went nuts for the whole flight. And uh, 
I had three reactions. I actually wrote these down. I had three reactions to this experience. The first reaction was why the mother hadn't brought a gallon of Tylenol PM. If not for Theo, then for the rest of us. My second reaction was irritation. Um, as I shared, you know, I, I paid for this seat just like the person who got the quiet chair. But my third reaction took my attitude in a completely different direction. And at that moment, God boarded the plane and somehow found room in my narrow heart. Before I passed off this mother as one who needed to just get it together, I thought about some other possibilities that she might have experienced. Uh, For all I know, this family just lost their husband and father, and the whole family's been stressed. This could, for them, in fact, be a good day. The son may have a disability that I didn't know about um, that gives the illusion of a negligent parent, when in reality she may be doing a stellar job. Maybe they were traveling for hours and uh, they were just stir-crazy. Or maybe, I thought, and I looked around for hidden cameras, maybe Bose, you know, the people that do the the noise-canceling headphones, and I had a pair of those, maybe this was a covert field test to see if they're... (laughs) to see if they worked. And I'm telling you, they didn't work. So... But evidently that wasn't it. But the real issue was more basic, I think. It was more basic. My real concern was not for this family, at least at first anyway. My real concern was selfish, that Theo had interrupted my expectation for a quiet flight. And after our plane landed and began to taxi, um, Theo, just for a moment, only for a moment, got completely silent. And I thought, what did she did she strangle him? Did he finally fall asleep? What happened? He actually got silent and he stuck his head up over the chair and looked me right in the eyes and smiled. For ten seconds of silence, he smiled at me. That was the only time he was quiet. And I just thought, he's gonna kill me right here. <laughs> But in that moment, I tell you, little Theo stole my heart. He stole my heart. But I thought, isn't it interesting that Theo's name means God? (laughs) I just wondered at the the irony of that. His name means God. My focus was on me, and there at the very end, God gave me a little gift in this little child's glance. The Pharisees retreated from sinners in order to stay protected. Jesus reached out to sinners to show them God's grace. Who do you want to be more like? Some people expect others to conform to their standard of holiness, but Jesus gave God room to conform people to His image. Who do you want to be more like? It's not an easy question to answer. We know the answer, but then the challenge comes extending that kind of grace to others that we want others to extend to us. Let's pray. Our Father, except for the grace of God, we are all like that fisherman taken by the river and about to drown unless someone can cast their line at us.
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. That's where the gospel begins. It begins with us personally. To be able to look deeply into our heart and honestly look past all the fluff, all the surface, all the facade that we want to present to others. And instead we look deeply into a heart that is deeply flawed and then allow the grace of the gospel to pour itself into the cracks. Where we realize that in and of ourselves that we were justly condemned, but Christ died to pay for our sins, and faith in Him removes every spot and stain. From that base of grace, we then look at the world and realize our goal is not to stay separate. Our goal is not to be Pharisees, but to be like our Christ who reached out and who loved and who shared even when it was amazingly awkward and uncomfortable. To reach out in everywhere from a steakhouse to an airplane and to share the grace of God and to be the face of God to people who desperately need it, just like we did. Father, this week before us, you have divine appointments arranged already, good works prepared ahead of time that we may walk in them. Give us eyes to see that we may not miss it and so miss a blessing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me today for Live the Bible. I hope that this perspective on bad company gives you a good mindset for reaching out to the world just like Jesus did. Next week, we'll be looking at how Jesus dealt with those who wanted to criticize him. Ever dealt with that? Well, that's next. Until then, live the Bible.